bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a morning where we can gather together with like-minded individuals to do the one thing that matters most, study the Word of God. Thank you for the spiritual gifts that function so faithfully in this ministry. We know that your Spirit is responsible for imparting such gifts and that you also afford each of us a measure of faith in time. We pray, Father, that our hearts be laid open to truth that you've ordained for us this morning. We pray also that those who cannot be here with us, even though they truly desire to be, that they too might be sufficiently encouraged. We pray that this message sound wide and far in a lost and dying world. We do just ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation in Sanctification, Part 16. Yesterday was interesting. I got here pretty early. uh, And then I got a phone call from a good friend of mine uh, who's a pastor. We talked for about two hours. And one of the things that came up in the conversation was doubting. Uh, This individual happens to be teaching the gospel as well. But one of the things that came up in the conversation was doubting. Doubting that even believers may experience regarding their own salvation. And here's how I described it up here on the board. A believer may at times be tempted to doubt their own salvation. However, a true believer will seek Him for answers and find Him every time, as well as their assurance. Again, a believer may at times be tempted to doubt their own salvation. However, a true believer will seek Him for answers and find Him every time, as well as their assurance. So, the way I think about Anyone doubting, uh, whatever is not from faith is sin, so if you go ahead and run with that, uh, it could become a sinful issue. Um, But the way I look at doubting is for believers, it's actually a cause for assurance because a true believer will seek in that time, in that moment of doubt, they will go to the source. And if they seek, as the Bible says, they will what? Find. And when you find Him again, there's your sense of assurance. He's right there. And so, you know, it was interesting because my friend made the statement that he's never had an unbeliever ask him about doubting salvation. It's always believers. And I responded that I believe the person who's examining themselves and their salvation is the same person who's seeking Him which is indicative of the same person whose heart has already been changed at salvation. So I don't think there's a problem with that. Matter of fact, I think it's a healthy thing. I've read a lot of theologians. I want to say my friend said that uh, he was even reading about Martin Luther, the great reformer, and that he often 
had doubt. But, like I said, the person who may have or may be tempted to doubt their own salvation, if they're truly a believer, they're going to seek him and what? Find him. And in that time, they are even reassured all the more. So the exercise itself, in light of Scripture, can actually be a healthy thing. Thursday's lesson was meant to give a bit of a balanced statement to the gospel. Please, you cannot be missing lessons. I'm just going to say that. Um, I think that's obvious by now. Up here in the board, and I said this before class, that this morning's lesson was going to be a bit of a survey of perspectives, two in particular, on the gospel. So let's start here. The gospel reality, there are two aspects of the gospel truth that are presented in the Bible, the Godward and the manward. It is imperative that you understand the context of a passage in order to understand which aspect is in view if not both. I cannot stress this enough. I was talking to Deacon Johnson before class how important context is. And I give the example. I know some of you have heard it already. I was driving down the road the other day and I pointed out into a community and said, over there somewhere, there's a man, an unbeliever, who loves his cat. Am I going to go over to that man and say, you don't love your cat? No, because I too believe that he loves his cat. Okay, but that love is not the same love that I have for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. He's an unbeliever. He loves his cat. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the common word? Love. So can I do a word study on my findings in life and say that love is always the same thing? No. Words are in context. And I've all but given, not given up, but I'm, let's just say I'm very, very cautious nowadays on the temptation to put too much into word studies. In other words, I'm not going to derive my doctrines from word studies. Word studies have their place. They can edify certain things. But to hang your hat on a word study and make a doctrine out of it is typically a very dangerous prospect. And I just gave you a practical example. Context, however, is the key. And if you don't read your own Bibles, you'll never get context. If you don't spend the time to read the fullness of a passage, you're not going to get context. Context is key. So let me give you some really nice perspective on this to get a situated funny story. I'm going away with the family on Thanksgiving, and Scott's going to be teaching. And he sent me his notes to review because it's on the gospel and salvation, and I ripped these off from his notes. <laughs> so you got to go get your own quotes. <laughs> no shame. I got it first. Just kidding. He's like, what? They're just that good. They're really good. Probably already knows which ones they are. They're by uh, an individual. In all fairness, I turned them on to the book that these quotes come from. Just saying. 
Just saying. Bruce Metzger. So this will help us with these different perspectives. They're unified when you think of the gospel as a whole. But they are different perspectives. There's the godly perspective. And Metzger calls it out as the regeneration side, if you would. And then there's the human or the manward side, which he talks about as conversion. So regeneration, in Metzger's words, regeneration and conversion are words to describe two different ways of viewing salvation. Regeneration is viewing salvation from God's side. It is an instantaneous impartation of new life to the soul. We may or may not be conscious of the exact moment this happened to us. But God very much knows that moment in time. Conversion, on the other hand, is viewing salvation from our perspective. It is a process of the entire work of God's grace from the first dawning of understanding and seeking to the final closing with Christ in new birth. For some, this is a period of years. For others, merely an hour. We respond in time to God's action in eternity. And that's very well said. Again, conversion, on the other hand, which is the flip side, this is the manward side, is viewing salvation from our perspective. It is a process of the entire work of God's grace from the first dawning of understanding and seeking to the final closing with Christ in new birth. For some, this is a period of years. For others, merely an hour. We respond in time to God's action in eternity. The language Metzger uses is less important to you than what he's trying to convey. That there are two different perspectives even on the gospel. I've said this in the past and I'll say it again. There's no single place in the Bible that articulates the complete good news about Jesus Christ. There's no one place, but yet we like to what? Whittle things down. We like to have our favorite verses stamped onto our t-shirts and little coins, and we'd like to have a convenient gospel because it makes things all tidy. But the good news about Jesus Christ, I don't know about you, but I just finished reading the New Testament all over again. And the good news was everywhere. I'm still learning about the good news. Amen? I'm still learning about the good news of Jesus Christ. So it cannot be just in one place in the Bible. This is why we believers continue to study the good news of Jesus Christ. Some will argue that 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 is the complete gospel presentation. Go there, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Some will actually argue that 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 is the gospel. But it's just an argument that the spirits will dispel here in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Some will argue that this is the complete gospel presentation. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. So some would argue that's the complete gospel. I ask a simple question to dispel that notion. Are the facts contained in this passage fundamental to the gospel? Indeed they are, of course. The facts contained in that passage are fundamental to the gospel. However, we are not to call the simple facts about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection the gospel. Since it's only a part of the gospel, namely the central facts about our Lord's work, it cannot be the whole thing. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 doesn't even mention saving faith or believing or repentance or anything beyond those mere facts. Even the demons, think about this, even the demons know these facts. They were there, after all, during Christ's humiliation. Even demons know the facts. Reminds me of even demons know that God is one and they what? They shudder. So demons know facts. So we know that mere facts cannot imply saving faith. An arrogant person can believe that certain facts about Jesus are true. But even that never implies that they are saved. Let's string a couple of passages together. Go to James 4.6. James 4.6. So if demons and arrogant unbelievers even can believe facts, then we know right away that mere facts do not imply salvation. So we cannot say that something like 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 is the gospel. Because it's just facts. James 4, 6, But He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud. But look at this. He gives grace to who? To the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So think of the demons and think of the arrogant unbelievers. He gives grace to the humble. Hold that thought. Look up here on the board. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, God gives grace to the humble, not the arrogant. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if we synthesize these things, and you're talking about a demon or an arrogant person who knows the facts, just knowing the facts doesn't save. Because God only gives grace to the humble. And you get faith by grace. Saving faith by grace. In other words, only the humble receive grace and therefore saving faith. But we just noted that even a demon and an arrogant person can believe the facts about Jesus and still remain unsaved. Let me give you a little analogy to help. If I take two years to build you a boat, or to build a boat, 
And since you're my neighbor, you've seen me out there completing the actual work. You know the facts about the boat. A tsunami comes, and I tell you, jump into my boat and be saved. Unless you have faith that the boat is viable, which has a lot to do also with your faith in the builder, you won't get into the boat. That is the difference between believing mere facts and saving faith. It's the same with the gospel. The heart issue of the gospel, and I use the word heart on purpose, facts are never enough. We must trust the architect of our salvation, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, by the way, is a person, not a list of facts. Facts are never enough. We must trust the architect of our salvation, Hebrews 12.2, the author and perfecter of our faith, that his good work is sufficient to save us if we even think that we need saving. There are lots of people out there that haven't even come to grips with that reality. Also known as if we possess a repentant heart. These are the heart issues of the gospel. Facts are never enough. We must trust the architect of our salvation that his good work is sufficient to save us if even we think we need a savior, a savior that we need saving. A truly arrogant person, say an unbeliever, will say, no thank you, I'll save myself by treading water. But you go ahead and jump in the boat. Some others might argue that John 3.16 is the gospel. Go there. Go to John 3.16. Others will argue this is the gospel. They have, you know, little coins and t-shirts and stuff like that. And they do great tent revivals and all this kind of thing. And, you know, then they go on their website afterwards and brag about hundreds being saved. And it's just a big emotional game. Not that some couldn't have been saved, but to proclaim that all were saved just because they said they rose their hand and you know went running up to an altar or something silly uh, is inappropriate. We don't have that right. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Some would say that's the gospel, but there are no facts associated with it. That we, that where are the facts from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5? Well, they're not there. But yet this wasn't in that passage. But we know that this cannot be the complete gospel because it says nothing about his work on the cross, nor his resurrection, etc. Others yet will argue that Ephesians chapter 2 is the complete presentation of the gospel. But even that as detailed as it is, is a forensic analysis of salvation. In other words, what has happened as a result of being saved, excluding any mention of the cross or His resurrection, though both are implied, or repentance. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth at the start of His public ministry. 
So even with all the details in a fantastic chapter as Ephesians 2, we can't say that that's the gospel even, at least not all of it. Just as a side note, did you know that Jesus, the great evangelist in the Bible, never used the word grace even once in the four Gospels? Did you know that? No. Most likely not. Unless I've told you or you somehow knew it before. But by the look of your faces, most of you did not know. Never use the word grace. So what we suppose then, in our little word studies, that since Jesus Christ never used the word grace, that he didn't understand the topic? Is this, is, this is what we're supposed to say? May it never be. More on the heart issue of the gospel. The interesting thing about passages that contain lots of details about the gospel is that nowhere does the Bible indicate that a person has to know every aspect of those passages to be saved. Do the homework tonight. Go home, read Ephesians 2. You'll be blown away by it. It's phenomenal. But are we to suggest that an unsaved, an unbeliever, is supposed to understand all the arguments and the logic that Paul was using in that time with believers nonetheless as a primary audience? Otherwise, they can't be saved? Are we to say that's the gospel? Because I'd argue that most of you don't know everything in Ephesians 2. I would say I don't know everything about Ephesians 2. So that can't be the gospel either. Darn it! There's just one place. You just put it on, stuff it all on the back of a coin. I don't even care if it's like a microfiche. Remember those things? You know, you need like a magnifying glass. It's a little big. The whole chapter's a little big for a coin, so make it a microfiche. You just got to hold it up to the light with a magnifying glass. You see, what the Spirit's saying is these approaches to the gospel are wrong. They're wrong. They're fundamentally wrong. There are lots of details about what happens at salvation that are disclosed to believers after salvation for the sake of assurance and progressive sanctification. And if you know anything about the context of any of the epistles, most of the time, Paul, Peter, James, Jesus' brother, John, they were all defending the gospel. Defending it. Which is still not something that an unbeliever would be concerned with. An unbeliever is concerned with, do I need a Savior? Am I a sinner? Is there a person that's willing and has able, been able to save me? A person. I don't care about all the gory details. Will someone save me? You don't need to have the intellect of Paul. Or you don't need to understand how Paul dealt time in and time out with Judaizers who were saying, oh no, it's salvation by works. You don't have to know what 
James, uh, Jesus' brother, wrote about in detail in James 2. Because the Judaizers were haunting him too. You don't have to know all those details, but you better understand the context when you go to those passages and read those details as a believer. As an unbeliever, you need to know about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's not a whole lot of gory details there for you. You're looking to put your trust in the author and perfecter of our faith. That's a relationship issue, folks, not a bunch of facts. So there are lots of details about what happens at salvation that are disclosed to believers after salvation for the sake of assurance and progressive sanctification. Heck, so much of that stuff can't even be understood by unbelievers because it's spiritually appraised anyways. However, unbelievers are to trust in a person and that Savior's work on the cross, which never implies the gospel is described by the forensic defensive analysis we find in certain contexts of Scripture. Is that part of the good news? Yeah. And that's what I love about reading my Bible. Every time I pick up the Bible, I find out more about the good news, which is more about Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful blessing. But we're not to, quote-unquote, whittle the gospel down from certain passages that are both forensic and defensive. They have a certain aim, in other words. So if we're going to listen to anyone about the gospel, we're going to listen to the great evangelist, Jesus Christ, who said, deny yourself and follow me. That's not hard, is it? that difficult? No. On that point, we must understand the following then. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of justification by faith. That's something that happens, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ not the gospel of justification by faith. The gospel cannot be whittled down to, a, to the forensically presented judicial aspects of salvation. Are those reality? Sure they are. But try explaining predestination and election to an unbeliever. Try explaining all the details of justification by faith to an unbeliever and say, if you understand all this, then you can be saved. Or maybe, just maybe, Jesus Christ himself had it correct. Drop the old life, I'll give you something new in me. You tell me which is more the gospel or the approach, the right approach to the gospel. Again, the gospel is not, or is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of justification by faith. The gospel cannot be whittled down to the forensically presented judicial aspects of salvation. Please learn this immediately and save yourselves a lot of confusion. Regardless of the error, the point is that there's no one place in the Bible 
Old Testament or New Testament that completely reveals the good news about Jesus Christ. As I've been teaching for years, the gospel is all of Jesus Christ, which really is the whole Bible. Now, exactly how much of that gospel an individual needs to be convicted of before they trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, frankly, that's an issue between that person and God. I don't know what exactly an individual needs to be saved. I know what is required, starting with humility. We just saw that. By grace, you're given saving faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But yet God only gives grace to the humble. So we know humility, as I've been saying for years now, is the key to all of this. So this is an issue between that person and God. I mean, look at the Bible. Try to find one exact, identical presentation of the gospel in the Bible. You won't find it. It was circumstantial. Whatever was required. Whatever is required. But that's between a person and the Lord. All we have faith in is that He'll get it done. We present what we know about the core issues. And by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, I spent a few hours on that book, the electronic booklet on the website called Are You a Sinner? If you haven't seen it yet, go there. That's a good place to start if you're going to try to evangelize someone. Look at the details in that booklet and see what you think. So we're to present what we know about core issues, etc. However, we aren't ever to suppose that we know the salvation status of anyone. Never. That's not our business. Okay, get back to our original point here. There are two aspects of the gospel truth that are presented in the Bible, the Godward and the manward. It is imperative that you understand the context of a passage in order to understand which aspect is in view, if not both. For example, ask yourself why Jesus would have to teach the following. Go to Mark 8.34. Ask yourself why Jesus would have to teach the following. In other words, if it was just about understanding and accepting certain facts about His death and His resurrection, etc., then why would He do this? Why would He present this, or make this presentation of the gospel. Why? Mark 8.34 And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, so there's a mixture of believers and unbelievers, basically a big crowd of people. And he said to them, If anyone wishes, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so he's tickling that idea of free will. That's what you see in that word, wishes, up here in its, 
in the Greek it's thelo. If anyone wishes to come after me, thelo means to will or wish, am willing to desire, to intend. In context, refers to a person's free will, their volition. When God sees this as positive towards the gospel, he gives the gift of salvation. God sees the heart. God gives grace to who? The humble. So what's left for man? If God gives repentance, we know that from the Bible. Heck, you could argue that God even gives the, the ability to believe. You know he gives the, gate, the, the faith by grace. All this stuff's by grace. What else is left for man? The only thing left for man is to be humble and learn what it means to receive grace. And that's not a work at all. That's just learning how to receive grace. But look what he's also addressing here. He doesn't just say, if anybody wishes, believe these facts. What does he say? He says, if anyone wishes, wills to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's basically presenting the reality of the converted individual. Conversion looks like this. You may not even be through it yet, but this is what conversion looks like. You ready? If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and then follow me. That may not happen yet, but this is what it looks like. This is what the conversion, think of Metzger, right? This is what the conversion process looks like. So Jesus Christ is directly talking to who? The manhood side of the gospel. He's not saying it's a bunch of facts. He's not saying it's justification by faith, because that's what his father sees at the moment of salvation. But we are not to present that as the gospel. The gospel is the good news that you can even get to Christ, the person. You see? So he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So when God sees this will, this free will, if you would, this humility, this desire even, he gives the gift of salvation. God sees the heart. Look at verse 35. We see the same word, Thelo, again. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So if your will, in other words, is to preserve the old life, to not deny oneself, then you're going to lose it eternally. Makes total sense to me. We're not talking about hardcore doctrines. We're not talking about all the the nitty-gritty, gory details that Paul had to lay out in the book of Romans or even Ephesians, or anywhere else that he went into the gory details forensically and defensively in his analysis and his logic. We're not talking about any of that, are we? And are we to suggest that Jesus Christ didn't know how to evangelize somebody? Well, what's wrong with Jesus? He never even used the word grace. Guess he wasn't a real evangelist then. Whoa! Good luck with that. You see what people can do when they're searching with the wrong motivation, if you would? I'm not saying they have ill intent, but they're coming in from the wrong side. They're asking the wrong questions. What can happen to the gospel? The gospel is actually very simple. A person either has the humility to realize they need a Savior, or they don't. And the Savior, my friends, is a person who died for you 
who was willing to die in your stead. Do you have to understand all the little nooks and crannies and the details of what happened at salvation? No. That's part of the fun of learning after you're saved, right? Because now you have the spiritual apparatus to actually do it. But all those details are not the gospel. They are part of it. Verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. J. Vernon McGee. The person who will not assume the risks involved in becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will, in the long run, lose his life eternally. That's J. Vernon McGee on that passage. Again, the person who will not assume the risks involved in becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will, in the long run, lose his life eternally. So the question again on the table is, why did Jesus have to teach such a thing? Why not just teach the facts and you know this kind of thing? Why did he have to teach such a thing? Why did he have to approach the manwood side? Why did he have to talk about the whole process of conversion? Because it's real to man. Guess what? You're a human being. I'm a human being. Unbelievers are human beings. We all have flesh. The thing is nasty. It's resistant. It doesn't want to change necessarily. Those are real considerations, are they not? Yeah. It's part of the conversion process. That's why it takes some people a long time. Some people have to fall flat on their faces before they get up and realize, well, that didn't work. I guess I'm not so righteous after all. I don't know how that works with everybody, but I know that's part of the conversion process. And that's good news, the way I look at it. You know, to tell somebody that they're a sinner and that they're unrighteous and that they'll never measure up in my book is very good news. A humble person will go, thank God, because I was just finding out I can't measure up. It's really good news that I'm not supposed to measure up. I was told over here in my old religion that I had to measure up. And I was on this treadmill, and I was exhausted every day, and I was insecure about my... Oh, so... Part of the good news of Jesus Christ is, guess what? You're never going to measure up on your own. So deny all that and follow me. The question on the table is, why did Jesus have to teach such a thing? It's because man's conversion is riddled with potholes and things meant to blind them set forth by the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Our enemies do not want us to be saved. The Word of God says that even the God of this world blinds the minds of who? The unbelievers. So there's certain things. There's things that take time. God, the Holy Spirit, works on the soil, so to speak. It's because man's conversion, again, is riddled with potholes and things meant to blind them, set forth by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, for example, and that's only one of the three identifiable enemies. So to get a little clearer on this, the man would issue 
The only thing standing in the way of a person's salvation then is the person and granted the influence of his enemies. But at the end of the day, the only thing standing in the way of a person's salvation is the person. What does God want for every person? For them to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. We know the will of God. And he's going to do everything in his power within the confines of his own integrity to save everyone. Fair enough? So then who stands in the way? And why does it take so long? Why is the word profound on compassion and loving kindness and patience? Because we're slow. Why does the Bible say slow to anger? Why does he say we should be slow to anger? Because we're slow. No offense. Right? And Jesus, when he said, deny yourself, if you want to follow me, you have to forget about that thing. This may take a little while. It's the funniest thing. Consider the following biblical facts. God promises to make himself known to all. We know this. The gospel will be made available to all at God consciousness. God, the Holy Spirit, guarantees conviction. Those are the facts. He'll make himself known. He'll get you the gospel. And God, the Holy Spirit, will be right there and convict every human being that has ever lived of the gospel truth. Do you understand? Unless they say no to God, but I don't want to get into the details. That's God's integrity. Otherwise, he'd be unjust in sentencing people to the lake of fire, which he'd never do. So if we just think of the perfect integrity of God in all of this, it's easy to, to conclude the point on the board. It's a man with problem. It's a man with issue. Man has issues. The only thing standing in the way of a person's salvation is the person, and of course, his enemies in terms of influence. In other words... Concentrate. If, if man were somehow completely and utterly passive in the conversion process, then based on the biblical facts about the Godward side of salvation, God would be unjust in sentencing unbelievers to hell. In other words, we'd be a bunch of robots. There would be nothing for us ever in terms of free will. So if man was somehow completely and utterly void, if you would, or passive in the, con uh, the conversion process, then based on biblical facts about the Godward side of salvation, God would be unjust in sentencing unbelievers to hell. So whether or not we can fully articulate or even understand what the Spirit does in the soul of an unbeliever, the simple fact remains, all believers... We're technically unbelievers at some point. Now, don't get all crazy with the kids and the people without the faculty. So save the moot point of those unable to arrive at God consciousness even due to age or faculty. Put that aside. I'm talking about, you know, the average individual. All believers were technically unbelievers at some point, which means that unless the hyper-Calvinists are correct, and they are not, and all hyper-Calvinist says is, 
God chose before any of this. It doesn't matter what you are. He chose. Believers and unbelievers, free wills from your will. They don't write either. So unless the hyper-Calvinists are correct, unbelievers have both been convicted and of and refused the gospel. Those are the facts. And please, don't ask me to explain it any deeper than that. Because you'd be asking me to explain supernatural things that are honestly not revealed in the Bible. I remember a doctrine, uh, my friend and I were laughing about it yesterday, the doctrine of Lapsarianism. <laughs> I actually watched a man, a, a decent enough learned man, implode behind a pulpit because he couldn't teach it. Maybe, just maybe, he wasn't supposed to be teaching it. I knew it. Nerd man. But it only ended up being a stumbling block in the end. It was another manufactured doctrine because man in his control issues can't take it when God says, that's enough. I'm not giving you any more. What I do with my unbelievers and convert them to believers, what happens in that moment or that lifetime is between me and them. So stop trying to control everything. Well, you see, this is what happens. It's election, and then it's this, and then they have it wrong, and they have it wrong. And everybody's like, I don't understand lapsarian. No kidding, you're not supposed to. It doesn't exist. You see, I can say that because guess what? You ready? I've been there, and I've done it, and I've known it. I've even been tested on it. been there, done that. In the words of Bill Johnson, I've taken 90% of what I thought I knew and threw it out the window. <laughs> and I've never been freer in my life. You said that, right, Bill? Bill's like, I said that? Yeah, you said that. <laughs> I don't forget things like that. Listen, when someone that's been at it for 50 years says that to a man like me, I hold on to it. Truth be told. And that, my friends, is humility. Anyways, don't get all emotional. I was like, I love Bill. <laughs> Jerry's still out on you, but I love Bill. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. So don't do that to me, okay? As far as my buddy's concerned, he's in the same boat. He's like, yeah, don't do that. Stop asking about ridiculous things. I, it's just not. God said no. No, no more. This is what I'm going to tell you. These are the facts. You're supposed to have faith. If you don't have that faith yet, then guess what? Go read your Bible. Keep going. Keep seeking. You'll find it. So all I can say after rereading the entire New Testament, and I just finished up with Revelation, is this. And there's just some plain facts that we have to come to grips with, folks. And you don't need to be a PhD in any one of the epistles or you know, the mechanisms of the program for the ages and all this kind of thing, to understand these plain facts. God sees the heart. The Spirit works on the human heart, convicting it of the gospel truth. Man's free will can reject the indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. How that works in one person versus the next, I don't know. 
why one person ends up going to Lake of Fire versus the next. I know what the facts say, but that's all I know. I don't know, you know where it went wrong or this or that and the other. Go to Romans 10.8. Romans 10.8. I'm really not interested. You know, I used to be interested when I used to pursue the doctrines of men and things like lapsarianism. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out, darn it. I'm going to get all this down. I was on a five-year plan. Oh, I had it all panned out. I was going to nail this. Nail it. <laughs> Pretty funny, isn't it? Romans 10.8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So all I can say again up here on the board a little bit more on the plain facts God the Holy Spirit prepares the unbeliever's human heart to make it ready to receive the gospel truth. If even after that a person rejects the guaranteed perfect presentation of the gospel, well, that person has a problem. Hebrews 6, 4-6. Again, these are the plain facts. What else do you want an honest man to say? Do you want him to make up a doctrine so you feel better about it? Or do you want to just understand the facts that are actually in the Word of God? Been there, done that. God, the Holy Spirit, prepares the unbeliever's human heart to make it ready to receive the gospel truth. If even after that, a person rejects the guaranteed perfect presentation of the gospel, well, that person has a problem. Go to Hebrews 6.4. Hebrews 6.4. Hebrews 6.4. So these are the plain facts, and we ought to be very comfortable with them. And these are the same things that, if you did what I just did, I read the entire New Testament, and I didn't just read it and just go. I mean, I read it, I studied certain verses, I bounced around, I went all over the place. But I kept on reading, and I got through the whole New Testament that way. And these things are the things that sort of percolated up. Time and time again, it didn't matter if I was reading red letters, didn't matter if I was reading Paul's words, or, you know, as long as you have the context, as long as you have the context, you can clearly see the gospel and how each writer was defending or presenting the gospel. It's either one or the other. It's either being presented or it's being defended. And so if you have the context, you know which one's actually going on. If you have the context, you also know when it's manward versus Godward. See, context is key. And I would encourage a lot of you to stop doing that thing that you've done for years. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with systematic theology. I have volumes of it in print and on my computer. There's a place for it. 
But in many ways, and I don't mean this in any disrespect whatsoever, in many ways those things ought to be left to theologians and PhDs. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. There's an awful lot of work that can be done in your soul by reading your own Bible and not trying to be a theologian. Hebrews 6.4 I'm not discouraging and I'm not talking down to anyone. Trust me. I'm just giving you food for thought. Okay? Hebrews 6.4 For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Again, the point on the board, God the Holy Spirit prepares the unbeliever's human heart to make it ready to receive the gospel truth. I mean, He's in there. How that works, how, what it means to taste the gospel, what it means to partake in the Holy Spirit this way, we know it happens because He's the one who convicts an unbeliever. So somehow there's a touch point, isn't there? Even with unbelievers. And we should be okay with that. Unbeliever, Holy Spirit, I want to talk to you right now. I'm going to convict you of something. They come together, they touch. This person tastes it and says, I don't want it. And the Holy Spirit says, I gave you my very best. I actually convicted you. I know you were convicted because I'm God. I know you were convicted, and you still chose to walk away. You still chose to say no. So I will not give you grace. I only give grace to the humble. I will not give you saving faith. You can believe the facts all you want. You can go out like the Pharisees did and do all the good works. You didn't do all that stuff. But I see your heart. And your heart said no, because you're arrogant. Here's some perspective worthy of our consideration regarding the Spirit's ministering of the gospel. Watchman Nee. Again, the Holy Spirit is, think about it, the Holy Spirit, it's His ministry after all. We are merely, you know, we show up with like a portfolio, if you would, and I don't want to belittle it, but we have the, you know, the facts of the gospel, the, you know, the scripture, the encouragement, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to, you know, seek his guidance on the right time to try to uh, evangelize someone, the right moment, uh, all those kinds of things. Yeah, it's part of, but he's also in us, telling us when to do that, encouraging us to do that thing. But at the end of the day, we don't save a soul. That's God's work. God saves, not us. And it's God the Spirit's ministry to ensure that every unbeliever is convicted with the gospel. So the Holy Spirit, when you're talking about sort of the inner workings of the Holy Spirit, and again, you do not, you do not need to know this stuff. I'm teaching a bunch of believers, presumably. You do not need to know what I'm about to quote as an unbeliever. What do you know about the Holy Spirit as an unbeliever? Truth be told, what do you care? Honestly, I'm not being wise. 
What do you care about the, or the Holy Spirit as an unbeliever? What you really care about is, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. So all these details about the Holy Spirit and this kind of a thing, and this is for you. Watchman Nee is a nice writer, and he says a lot of things well, so I'm quoting him here. On the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does not work alone. Rather, he works through the cross. Without the cross, the Holy Spirit has no ground to work. Without the Holy Spirit, the work of the cross is dead. Think about that. Although it has already had been affected toward God, it has no effectiveness toward man. If man merely understands in his mentality, and there is no Holy Spirit to regenerate him within his spirit, his understanding cannot help him. If what man believes in is of man's wisdom, not of God's power, he is merely stimulated in the soul and cannot last long because he is not regenerated. Think of the parable of the soils. Only those who believe with the heart, I just gave you Romans 10.10, can be saved and receive regeneration. The work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us is to reprove us of our sins and lead us to repentance that we may believe and know the Savior, you know, a person. Thus, He gives us a new nature. Yeah, that's His ministry. That's about as good as you're going to say that aspect of what goes on. But there's not a whole lot more to say about it. If you get any deeper than that, you're getting dangerously close to trying to articulate something supernatural that you know nothing about. You only know your own experience, if you can even remember it. And at the time, if you were, especially if you were saved as an adult, chances are you didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit's ministry at salvation. You just know you were convicted. You learned later that it was the Holy Spirit that convicted you. But you didn't need to know all the gory details. You didn't need to go to some lengthy passage of Scripture that was a forensic defense of the gospel to be saved. You just needed to know that you needed a Savior. And God made sure that you were convicted of it and that you had been presented the gospel. Okay, I don't want to move too far away from the central theme of this morning's lesson, nonetheless, but I wanted to share Watchman Nee. The gospel reality, there are two aspects of the gospel truth that are presented in the Bible, the Godward and the manward. It is imperative that you understand the context of a passage in order to understand which aspect is in view, if not both. For example, Hebrews 6, 4-6 is a perfect example of the manward side of things, a manward side of things, where a person has tasted of the heavenly gift and chosen to fall away, their heart left unchanged. So the conversion was, quote-unquote, disrupted. Came this far and then that was it. The same goes for the second and third categories of soils in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Jesus presented this, the key parable, to his disciples so that they would be aware of the manward difficulties in evangelizing unbelievers. You're going to see it. 
people that sprout up really quickly. Woo, yeah, emotional. Yeah, I just went to this revival. It was awesome. You know, I just, I basically just held out a basket and said, throw some blessings in there, will you? One of them looks like heaven. Woo, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, of course I believe I'm going to heaven. The other one's hell. So, yeah. And like a month later, they're like, Jesus, who? My basket's empty. I want more blessings. They're not changed. Where's the love? They're not changed. So it's true. Jesus taught his disciples about even the man with difficulties in evangelizing unbelievers. And again, as Metzler, Metzger says up here on the board, regeneration and conversion are words to describe two different ways of viewing salvation. Regeneration is viewing salvation from God's side. It is an instantaneous impartation of new life to the soul. We may or may not be conscious of the exact moment this happened to us. Conversion, on the other hand, is viewing salvation from our perspective. It is a process of the entire work of God's grace from the first dawning of understanding and seeking to the final closing with Christ in new birth. For some, this is a period of years. For others, merely an hour. We respond in time to God's action in eternity. So what the Spirit's been saying this past week, even, though the, or even through the past few blogs, if you've been reading them, is that the gospel is much bigger than just the judicial aspects of justification by faith. It's much bigger than just repentance or knowing and believing facts or even professing faith. The gospel is all of this. After all, it's called the good news because all of it is good news. We mustn't make the the dire mistake of mincing perspectives in the Bible up here on the board This is my last slide before we get into communion service. This is the common mistake that I have seen personally, that I have experienced even personally. The contemporary mistake in mainstream Christianity seems to be in taking the basic judicial aspects of salvation, the Godward side, nothing wrong with them. Do they occur at salvation? Sure. But the mistake in mainstream Christian or Christianity seems to be in taking the basic judicial aspects of salvation and presenting them as the complete gospel. That is a mistake. Sometimes we are presented with the Godward side, the judicial side. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Those are... Those are judicial things. Are they part of the grander gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Other times we are presented with the manwood side, the drawn-out aspects of salvation. Think of Romans 7 and 8. The gospel makes perfect sense to the person who doesn't mix the two viewpoints. And that's what I learned reading the New Testament, from cover to cover. That's what I learned. As long as I had the context right, everything was cool. Everything was awesome. 
until I got to Re- Revelation. And the demons were like, you haven't read the blog, that's what that one's about. It was, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I'm like, oh my word! It was like palpable. Palpable. I mean, I'm distractible as it is, but they were all over me. All I could think about, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh-oh. You're going to read about prophecy, are you? So, but we don't let that discourage us. To me, that's encouraging. Anyways, the gospel makes perfect sense to the person who doesn't mix the two viewpoints. And one last statement of wisdom there are just some things that are not disclosed in the Bible. And that is just fine. For it is faith that we must cling to, not always facts and or doctrines. There's just some things that aren't disclosed in the Bible. And one of the biggest lessons I think any of us can learn, and I know many of you are serious students, true disciples of the Word of God, and it bothers you a little bit that God would withhold information from you, which is why you have an affinity for false doctrines or doctrines of men that have sort of gone too far and made doctrines that actually aren't there, be it through word study or, you know, whatever. Taking this verse and that verse out of context, putting them together, you know, doing that thing because you want answers and I want them now. So you just create things out of thin air. How dangerous is that? Just one of the best lessons. Realize that there's a lot of stuff that is not disclosed. And you should be okay with it. Amen? All right, ushers. It's that time.
always, uh, always struggle after a lesson like that. It's not much to say when it comes to communion, except maybe something as simple as, in light of the gospel, let us celebrate the person and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lights, please. I find the beauty of your matchless grace At the cross I see a king who died to take my place It's the moment that you made me clean and pardon my soul
close in prayer. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore without hope. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you do believe that you need a Savior, you do repent of your sinfulness, accept the free invitation that is Christ himself and be saved. If you just believe for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the royal family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for reminding us of the simple fact that you give grace to the humble, and that without your grace, we'd be nothing, we'd do nothing, and we'd think nothing good, for we'd still be in our sins. We are so very grateful and thankful that you have chosen we believers to a destiny that is much greater than anything we could possibly imagine. And for what? For free. May we seek you always and remember the humility that found salvation in your Son. For you see our hearts and you bless those who are truly humble. May you bless all those traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen.